So, hello again, everyone. Uh, thank you for downloading uh, this new episode of the podcast. It's it's been a while since our last conversation. Uh, as I've put on my Twitter account, um, I will endeavour to make sure that we have more regular episodes uh, next year. Um, things have been quite busy from my side. Uh, however. I'm very, very happy today to have uh, Guillaume Verdon from IQC in Waterloo, who's agreed to come on today and have a bit of a chat about his own research, but also give us a bit of a field report from a recent uh, workshop held by IBM last week in uh, quantum technology down in New York. So Guillaume, thanks uh, a lot for joining me. Right, right. Happy to be here. Um, it's um, I've been a fan of the podcast for a while, so it's nice to Maybe I'll get to hear my own voice uh, <laughs> on the podcast. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was quite the meeting last yeah. week. It was really exciting times. Um, so before yeah. we get into that, um, as usual, I'll let you start off with a bit of a bio and sort of what you do in Waterloo and uh, how you got into uh, doing quantum computing research. Right. Well, I guess growing up, I uh, I want to be a theoretical physicist. You know, at first it was astrophysics and. Eventually, I want to be a string theorist, and then uh, I guess I got caught up in more uh, quantum field theory, and I came to Waterloo for the ecosystem, right? The perimeter, IQC, Waterloo, math uh, mm -hmm. ecosystem, uh, and I did my master's with uh, Achim Kempf, um, uh, studying uh, quantum field theory, and I started uh, mixing a bit, learning more and more about quantum computing because I was part of the, the IQC quantum information program here. Uh, and I was trying to combine some aspects of quantum computing and quantum field theory. So that's part of uh, my research I've done in the last few years. And now I've somewhat pivoted uh, because, you know, with the, the media uh, uh, hype, I guess, uh, around AI, I got interested in AI. And I, uh, once, you, once you have an undergraduate degree in mathematics and physics, it's actually quite easy to pick up um, this theory. And, uh, you know, basically... Uh, theoretical physics has been around for quite a bit of time, so you know having a really significant results is is quite difficult because somebody mm -hmm. probably figured it out 50 years ago. Yep. Whereas, let's say what I'm interested in uh, now, quantum machine learning, uh, you know, my hope is that well, my hope with switching fields was that there might be some low hanging fruit, right, and that there's opportunities to to leave a mark there. Um, so. Uh, so far, that's 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 what I'm trying to do. Um, Sounds very and... familiar to my own story, actually. <laughs> great, great. Yeah. So, I mean, you're obviously a theorist uh, then, right. and sort of working much more on the algorithm side uh, rather than mm. specific implementations or specific uh, architectures. Well, I, I think that a good theorist should, especially in the in the pre-fault tolerance era, should have in mind what kind of implementations. This their his algorithms are or his or her algorithms are going to be implemented. Uh, uh, what kind of implementation? What physical implementations the algorithms are going to run on? Because you need to adapt or or keep in mind. Let's say maybe maybe some some aspects of my algorithm could exploit uh, continuous variables. Let's say or mm -hmm. or discrete and continuous. Or is this coupling or this certain gate very natural to implement in superconducting qubits or ions? So it's it's interesting to consider um, the the hardware that will run an algorithm to really tailor it uh, to to uh, to the specific implementation because uh, when it's more natural there's less overhead in, in sort of 
translating the physics that we want to the, the system to undergo undergo versus the the natural physics that the the system uh, wants to evolve under. Um, so that that was part of the actually the the discussion um, uh, last last week in uh, at IBM. It was to really try to figure out what to do with these near-term devices that are in the so-called pre-fault tolerant uh, threshold. Uh, mm -hmm. So before we could before we have enough qubits to perform uh, proper error correction, and I'm sure uh, listeners, of the, listeners of the podcast are familiar with error correction because it's been discussed, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a main topic in quantum computing. Yeah. But before, before we could get to, to error correction, we need to figure out if there's anything interesting. Uh, well, it's certainly interesting to us uh, as quantum computer scientists, but is there something perhaps useful that quantum computers cannot could do right now uh, before achieving fault tolerance that would be somewhat intractable with uh, classical computers. Um, so, I mean, this all comes back into many of the things that people are looking at now, whether it's um, obviously the conference was held by IBM and IBM mm -hmm. runs the, the quantum experience, which is uh, this cloud-based quantum platform. Um, mm -hmm. But maybe you could go into it just a little bit more detail of, of, of what they're kind of meaning in terms of this sort of non-fault tolerant uh, regime, because it is, as you said, very important, but it's also something that um, we really, as a community, don't have a solid answer for yet. Right. Um, the non-fault tolerant regime, I guess, uh, before, you know, depending on the error correcting codes you want to implement, you know, you can calculate different thresholds, right? Error rates for that if, you know, every gate I try to apply, if my error rate is under uh, a certain probability, then I could scale things up. Uh, and, you know, as I scale things up, uh, you know, the added qubits are not going to make things worse. Mm -hmm. It's going to it's going to make things better. And then my error rate, my logical error rate, where my qubits are kind of virtually encoded kind of non-locally on many physical qubits, uh, my logical error rate on those kind of virtual qubits uh, uh, decreases as I scale up. But before this threshold, as you scale up, it's not clear that uh, you would gain much from that because there's more things that could go wrong if you try to if you try to uh, undo the errors. Um, so I guess there was a lot of discussion of that um, before actual full uh, quantum error correction, how to mitigate errors almost at an analog level or an experimental level um, and how how to use, small quantum computers in the sense that, you know, there's there's a certain probability of, of error of each gate. So we're, we're kind of limited in how much depth we could we could do without having, you know, a, a completely fatal to our computation error. Um, so we're, we're kind of limited in depth mm -hmm. and somewhat in the size because it's hard to build a really large quantum system that we have really great control over and that we could do gates with uh, pretty high fidelity of gates. Um, so I guess that's what we mean uh, by uh, pre-fault tolerant quantum computers. It's quantum computers that we know that each gate we apply, there's a certain chance that it's off uh, by little. But, mm -hmm. you know, does this error, do, 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 for a certain algorithm, does this error completely, you know, uh, blow up because uh, the system is somewhat chaotic? And we'll, we'll get to that uh, 
later on when we talk about quantum advantages, I guess. But yes, the the system is quite chaotic, so a small error could kind of propagate if you if you have a long depth of the circuit. So you got to adapt your algorithms uh, to be able to kind of survive despite uh, the, the the hazardous conditions. Uh, uh, that is uh, the environment that is coupling to your quantum computer and and kind of messing up your computation. So it's basically so, the the whole principle is: can we find quantum algorithms that are sort of small enough and quick enough that we can get them done before errors take over the system and destroy our right. computation? Right. So what to do with short quantum circuits? Right. It's hard to simulate uh, many qubits. Let's say I have. You know, right now, some people say 50 qubits is around where it gets really hard for a classical computer to, to simulate. But, you know, let's say 60 qubits. Let's say I have 60 qubits and I, I want to simulate a circuit of depth four, but I don't t- tell you what circuit it is. Mm-hmm. That's going to be quite difficult uh, with a classical computer, right? So that's intractable classically. So what kind of algorithms that are of fixed depth or, or very low depth? That that we so what kind of quantum algorithms could we design that are very low depth but still useful? So maybe maybe we want to run many classical circuits, many different classical circuits, and get answers from that, and then talk to a classical computer, and the classical computer does a bit of work, and the quantum computer and the classical computer kind of work synergistically, and talk to each other and solve a problem of interest. And that's that's one of the a lot of the algorithms that were discussed are these so-called classical quantum hybrid variational algorithms, right? right? And this is, I could parametrize a family of possible circuits that are my guess to, to the solution to my problem. Let's say I'm trying to find a certain ground state of uh, some, some, ke- in some chemi- chemistry scenario. Um, then I could guess a set of circuits that I think could get me to this ground state from you know, the, the zero state, the, the initial blank state. And I try a few of, the, of these, and I could um, measure the final energy uh, at, at the end of applying uh, my current guess. And then I get an estimate of, you know, the current energy, and I try to minimize this energy with a classical computer, right? I, I, the classical computer just gets what is the energy output, right, for the parameters I fed it. So it's kind of a black box to the classical computer. The, the quantum computer is a black box. It's just I, uh, I, the classical computer gives the quantum computer some parameters. The quantum computer spits out an expectation value of energy, mm-hmm. which is a scalar. And the, the classical computer could come up with, well, using classical optimization algorithms, could try to figure out how to optimize these parameters to minimize this energy. And IBM themselves have had some success uh, applying such variational algorithms. Uh, so there's an algorithm called the variational quantum eigensolver, which is exactly what I've been talking about. The mm-hmm. Let's say you want to find an eigenstate, such as the ground state of a system, and you have a Hamiltonian that you know from uh, physics, then this is a way to, in some sense, figure out how to prepare the ground state. And then you could study it. Once you know how to prepare it, you could just prepare and measure and study different properties. Another algorithm um, that is more for applications and optimization um, is the quantum approximate optimization algorithm, otherwise known as QAOA. Mm-hmm. And um, this is invented by Eddie Farhi, who uh, was at MIT and now is at Google. And um, 
this algorithm in some senses too, again, the optimization is somewhat done by both the classical computer and the quantum computer. But this algorithm rather is based on, I parameterize uh, my circuit that will get me to say, I encode my, my optimization problem as, again as a ground state problem. But we know from say adiabatic quantum computing that if I start in the ground state of a certain Hamiltonian, and a Hamiltonian for those listening is, is kind of an energy function, more or less an operator representing the energy. So I could start in the ground state of a certain Hamiltonian and adiabatically, so slowly, very slowly, uh, change the Hamiltonian from an initial Hamiltonian to the target Hamiltonian, the Hamiltonian that really encodes uh, my problem, that mm -hmm. I want to find an optimum. And usually that this would mean I have, uh, if you study the physics of this, the operator that gives you this time evolution is a mixture between um, ex well exponentials or evolutions under the initial Hamiltonian and the target Hamiltonian. So the QAOA, instead of having a, long, a very long simulation circuit that would take billions of gates to, to simulate the adiabatic evolution on a circuit model, uh, you essentially just uh, figure you uh, fix the number of pulses, right? Uh, and you uh, it's it's pulses of the initial Hamiltonian, the final Hamiltonian, and you optimize uh, the pulse lengths to minimize the energy of the target Hamiltonian. And this has been shown to have very good performance uh, for optimization. So I guess I guess for those less well versed, I'll give it an analogy. You know, I, I want to get to, um, I want to get to a certain endpoint in uh, in Manhattan, right? Uh, and you know, I, I I need to go northeast, right? And there's there's many ways to go, you know, uh, ten blocks east and uh, twelve blocks north, right? I could turn right and left at different points, and each each turn would be a different uh, so-called pulse, right? Uh, but let's say I fix myself to taking five turns then, or four turns, there, there might be uh, many paths that get me to the endpoint. Mm -hmm. If every time I could tell you, you know, how well you did, uh, then you could adjust how long you go east before you turn and go north again. And so this way, you make the job easier than the original optimization for the classical computer, but the classical computer still has to do a bit of work. But in some sense, the quantum computer, uh, you know, I, I, I described it. I described this optimization problem as a, an easy 2D problem. But you know, it's it's an optimization in the Hilbert space, right? Which is much more di higher dimensional than 2D. Yeah. Yep. So those are so those are like the two uh, main algorithms that people talk quite a bit about. Um, so those are they're the variational class of algorithms, and some people are are, are looking at can we can we extend the success of these variational algorithms to, say, error correction? So how to how to figure out how to uh, have a quantum memory that's stable to the noise of your system, right? Because it's very hard to characterize the noise of your system. So what if you just adjust it on the fly in some sense? You just check different encodings and see what's what's best. So um, I guess so. So far, I've talked about error mitigation. And you know heuristic algorithms for optimization chemistry uh, and uh, machine learning. I guess you could also apply this QAOA for machine learning, and that's 
that's my work. I got, maybe I'll, I'll talk about that later. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Uh, um, and I guess another big topic was uh, trying to to define exactly what is the quantum advantage, right, or the quantum supremacy, the threshold, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I guess the the industry partners are, are 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 quite excited about this because that that would you know mark the point where. Well, again, it's 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 very it's tough to define in the first place when, you know, quantum computers have truly surpassed classical computers, right? Um, so I guess some people were presenting uh, a bit of work on uh, complexity theory, trying to really characterize the the task that will demonstrate uh, the complexity of the task that was that will demonstrate quantum supremacy. So this is and, something I mean, that, that maybe you could go into a little bit more as to sort of define what this means. Is What are we talking about in the community when we're talking about um, something like quantum supremacy uh, and quantum computers being better than classical computers? Um, because right. how, is that, how is that something to define when we haven't really even built them yet? Right. Well, I mean, we have, quant- we have a few quantum computers, uh, but I guess we're trying to find a task, whether it's actually useful for something in, uh, or not, uh, that uh, quantum computers, that current quantum computers can do, and that no classical computer of reasonable scale, I guess, you know, you don't want a planet-sized classical computer, mm-hmm. but no classical computer of reasonable scale could do. And I think, I mean, I'm no expert in, in this particular area but from what i gather it's uh simulating a a quantum computer applying a random circuit is very difficult for a classical computer to sample from the distribution that is output by this random circuit Mm -hmm. so in some sense you know some people tie this to quantum chaos a notion of quantum chaos Uh, the distribution output by a random circuit is highly chaotic it's very random in a particular way um, and a classical computer cannot uh, sample from the distribution. Uh, does that mean that it's useful? Does, is it useful for cryptography? Well, not that I, not as far as I know. But you know, it, it would be it would be kind of a checkpoint or or an achievement for any team that achieves this quantum supremacy. So there's currently a race in some sense to and and again, it's it's still unclear to me when exactly we have reached this because on one end you have the quantum computers getting better but on the other end you have not only our classical computing infrastructures that are always getting better but our our simulation algorithms our classical simulations of quantum circuits are getting better right there's tensor network methods and there's other methods that are popping up uh and it's it's going to be it's it's still a race uh you know so you have kind of two camps uh, the classical computing and the quantum computing, and we'll see when quantum computers truly surpla- surpass quantum compute, uh, classical computers. But uh, personally, I think that it's important that we also find, you know, algorithms that have a, a use. You know, quantum chemistry or machine learning or some application, such that you know it it, it matters. Say for a company, let's say they're 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 trying to they have some computing task. You know, is it worth actually renting time on a quantum computer? Uh, before the fault tolerance era, uh, you know, I, I I don't know who's trying to, you know, who's trying to sample from quantum chaotic distributions. Um, so 
I guess well, it's an important, isn't it? That the, yeah. there is no actual commercial application to the algorithms well, that will demonstrate supremacy. Right, right. The algorithms that demonstrate supremacy themselves, at least those that we have in vision right now, are are nice. And I guess because, in some sense, the randomness of the circuit gives it some. Uh, there, it's somewhat easier theoretically to deal with. Uh, so it, it's easier to really quantify how hard this is. Uh, but I guess some people have put out there that perhaps, perhaps these variational algorithms could demonstrate a quantum advantage, uh, such as QAOA. But you know that 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 would be a bit more difficult to prove. That um, you know it might be empirically that QAOA seems to work better. Better, but you know, have we could we say we have truly reached supremacy by running this algorithm faster than say a supercomputer? It's hard to tell. But uh, there's quite a few people uh, working on this, uh, working very hard to make this more precise. And I probably uh, butchered uh, uh, their work there, but uh, you know, uh, this is what I got out of it uh, myself. But I, I think I think it's an important goal to to reach. But I think it might be overblown in the media. You know, it's something to catch headlines. And um, but I, I think you know some people have to work on this, but you know some other people have to also work on, you know, okay, there seems to be perhaps some power there that we can use. Let's use it for something. Let's figure out how to use this power of, of, of these uh, circuits that are still somewhat noisy, right? So was there any uh, conclusions that were drawn from last week? I mean, with some of the, the work that's being done with um, the variational eigensolvers and QAOA, um, have right. they been able to generate circuit structures that are small enough to be run on non-error-corrected hardware? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I think that's that's been that's been achieved a, a few times. Uh, but the question there is, oh, sorry, I know, mean, how... I mean, problem sizes that would be worth somebody paying for. Ah, um, that's a good question. I mean, we we think that uh, the well, I guess some people think that maybe past fifty qubits is worth paying for. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that's going to depend from customer to customer and algorithm to algorithm. Um, but, uh, from a, com- yeah, I, I'm not too sure about the, the commercial side, but, you know, I, I, I guess it's important that even with quantum computers we have now that might be, you know, 16 qubits, uh, IBM has a 16 qubit, uh, computer online. Uh, you know, what can we do with that and see if it works? Right. Uh, and maybe as we scale up the number of qubits, then we'll really see a gap in performance with classical. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, at this scale, it's very difficult to say that we truly have an advantage. And another thing with these these uh, variational algorithms is that the load on the classical computer is still quite high. Um, it's hard to quantify exactly the complexity of these algorithms because the well. The, the classical computer does a bit of work and the quantum computer does a bit of work so it's it's kind of uh, it's kind of difficult to, f- to figure out if, if this is truly giving you an advantage so you have to empirically check it so a bit like classical machine learning right and that's some com- there's people complaining about this nowadays that classical machine learning is is kind of like uh, it's an empirical science people try different things and they check if it works right because we don't have that great of an understanding, or if we try to prove general bounds, it's 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 always ver- a very hard problem. But practically, it seems that you know getting good enough solutions um, uh, is always or very often tractable. So so in some sense, this era of quantum computing uh, 
is dominated by a set of algorithms that, you know, you, you got to try, you got to try them to see if they work. And especially with noise, it's hard to, to predict how they, they will behave. Um, so I guess uh, my work too uh, has been on uh, a, trying to figure out how to use this these near-term algorithms that you can run on these pre-fraud-tolerant quantum computers to do uh, machine learning. And hopefully uh, the paper is going to be out on archive this week. It's with uh, Jacob Biamonte, who's been on the podcast, I believe. Yep, yep. Um, and this is how to uh, use QAOA to train neural networks, right? And just like I explained that QAOA is somewhat uh, inspired from adiabatic algorithms, uh, and we know that uh, D-Wave has been able to train neural networks for quite a while now. Uh, in some sense, we took that that inspiration from these adiabatic slash annealing quantum computers and how they train networks and use QAOA instead uh, of an annealer. And in this way, we showed that you can train uh, neural networks such that they could learn patterns in data or find hidden subspaces, even if you have a noisy uh, computer. Um, so that's that's exciting. So uh, how would another, this, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but how would this work in the context of, of what we're seeing now with classical machine learning? When you're saying, okay, we're going to use a quantum computer to help train these neural nets. Is mm. it something that you can, you plug your quantum computer into some neural net classical neural network for the training process and then unplug it after it's finished or will you always need the access to the quantum computer um right combined uh, well, with, with with this classical system um so so you're asking if we so there's two parts to machine learning you gotta you give you know you give your network or you get some data and you train your network and then there's another part where you try to do inference either it's uh it's uh, supervised machine learning where you're trying to classify, you know, different data points in different classes. Let's say this is a picture of a cat. I want to label it as cat. Or And there's also unsupervised machine learning where you try to figure out the behavior of the distribution. Let's say I gave you pictures of bedrooms, you know, generate me a new picture of a new bedroom I haven't given you, right? So generate new instances of the data that kind of lie in the same subspace where all the data I gave you was. Um, so... Our algorithm, depending on the type of network you want to implement, the inference is done classically and the training is done quantum classically. It's hybrid, right? Um, but the idea, as I mentioned in the talking about QAOA and variational quantum eigensolvers, is to reduce the load a bit. On the classical computer, um, there's a part of, uh, if you want to use so-called Boltzmann machine neural networks, there's a part of the training that is quite difficult, and that's called the, the Gibbs sampling, sampling from thermal distributions mm -hmm. of different uh, Ising-type Ham Hamiltonians. And you could do this approximately, uh, we showed, uh, with these uh, low-depth circuits. And we, you could use this to train your network uh, quantum classically, and then we did the inference uh, classically. Um, so in some sense, it's just, you know, maybe... My, my hope personally with all this quantum machine learning, you know, a lot of people are chasing exponential speed up algorithms, right? Such as um, the HHL algorithm, right? Using using this uh, exp exponential speed up algorithm for 
uh, linear algebra, mm -hmm. right? Inverting matrices and then, you know, inserting that alg algorithm as a subroutine into various machine learning algorithms. You know, often I think exponential speedups uh, come at a cost of not being very robust to noise. Right. These algorithms are very high depth. Uh, and they're quite difficult to implement in the near term, and maybe they will dominate absolutely in the in the fault tolerant era. Uh, but even then, you have to make sure your gate counts are in order. And actually, that's uh, that's something people were talking about at this conference was uh, the gate counts for various quantum simulation scenarios. Mm -hmm. um, I'll get to that, I guess. Um, but for for machine learning, uh, yes, the uh, I guess. A constant factor speed up. So, you know, let's say, let's say I run in the same neural network on a quantum classical hybrid computer versus, you know, let's say a, a laptop and um, uh, a quantum chip versus, you know, a supercomputer. Then, you know, perhaps I use a hundred thousand times less power. That would be, you know, that'd be amazing. Uh, but if that would be the case, um, you know, even if I'm doing the same thing and, you know, in terms of asymptotics it's, it's still the same scaling you know if i have a constant factor speed up that's still very useful to to real world applications right so a lot you know a lot of people or a, a lot of theorists have worked on you know upper bounds to algorithms you know the famous big o asymptotic scaling of how will how will the runtime or the space overhead of certain algorithms uh, be if you scale things up um you know, a lot of people are trying to chase uh, a, a gap between cl classical and quantum that is, uh, you know, an exponential gap. So something that would take polynomial time on a quantum computer would take exponential time on a classical computer. So I don't, I, I don't personally chase such algorithms for machine learning because uh, from a complexity standpoint, I think machine learning is quite difficult. But I think mm -hmm. even if we have constant factor speedups that are significant, I think from a practical uh, standpoint and from an industrial application standpoint, that's still of large interest to say corporations or whatnot. So I think we still have to try many different algorithms and many different ways of doing this before we could say, this is the way to do machine learning on a quantum computer. Um, so typically yeah. with, with, with machine learning, um, how big, how big a qubit array do you actually need? How big are these circuits? Do we need 50 qubits, 100 qubits? Can it be done with, you know, right. 10 steps, 20 steps? Or are, are we really talking about, you know, 100 qubits, 100,000 to a million gate steps, and therefore we definitely need error correction? Right. So, I mean, if you do HHL-based algorithms, you know, I've seen some papers doing gate counts, that go up to 10 to the 28 gates, right? That's mm -hmm. even even once we have fault tolerance, that's that's still that's a, a long time away. That's a large number. <laughs> right. Whereas QAOA is somewhat constant depth, depending on your your chip or your connectivity. You know, I think we we counted you know maybe a hundred gate depth for certain cases of our algorithm. So that's not too bad, right? And I guess the the near term era is well, right now with our current noise levels of various implementations is roughly anything under a thousand gates we think we could do uh, with enough runs and repetitions mm -hmm. and anything you know let's say you look at quantum simulation now let's say you want to do dynamics simulate time evolution let's say i want to 
simulate a certain a certain chemical reaction, right? How it evolves in time and how it all happens, then you know a lot of people were uh, were uh, working on this and 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 talked about it at the conference, and seems that we're talking the billions plus gates, right? And if we're in the billions regime, uh, then we're pr- we're probably uh, in the fault tolerance era at that point. So it's kind of it's kind of either you're you know under a thousand gates, and the classical computer still does quite a bit of work, or you're you know in the billions plus gates, and you're in the uh, post fault tolerance era. So. You know, I guess I guess it's important that we have algorithms for each era of quantum computing because we need to get to the fault tolerance era, right? We need to get the funding to improve our experiments and we, we need to do useful things with these quantum computers we have today or in the next few years to fuel the research that will get us to, you know, the promised land of of fault tolerant quantum computing and and the original idea of Feynman of of being able to simulate most quantum systems on a on a quantum computer. So what was the what was the sort of feeling at the conference? Because certainly the pictures and the slides that I've seen from some of the talks last week, um, a lot of it seemed to be here are the circuits. It requires a billion gates, a trillion gates, right. and right. it seemed very much like we're trying. We know what we have to do. But every time we, we look at one of these algorithms and do it as a problem size that would be difficult for classical computers to compute, we end mm. up showing that the numbers always fall into the error correction regime. And we can never f- seem to get anything small enough that could be run um, before error correction needs to be taken into account. I mean, am right. I correct? In, in, that was the... In- that was the feeling I got seeing slides that had, had popped right, up in most, the workshop. You know, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I think for... For quantum simulation, uh, I think there's also for solving uh, SDPs, which are certain optimization problems with exponential speed up. Um, and yeah, various, various people presented that, uh, yeah, we would need above billions of gates and trillions even. Um, so that's definitely in the post, post-fall tolerance era, you know, but we, we need to explore the landscape of algorithms. Um, but I guess these variational algorithms I've been talking about are definitely in the pre-fault tolerance era, but it's hard to prove whether these algorithms will work, whereas, you know, the simulation algorithms, we have nice mathematical bounds that tell us that, you know, the evolution of our of our Hilbert space, of our qubits and our quantum computer, you know, is, is this close to the evolution that we want to mimic in the, the physics of nature, right? And there's nice little bounds uh, to, to prove, but... Whereas these these variational algorithms are more heuristic. It's kind of it's kind of like gambling. You don't know what you're gonna get. Sometimes mm-hmm. you you initialize your optimization wrong, or you know you, you got to get lucky, and th- that's kind of more difficult to prove that it will work uh, very well, right? So it's it's got to be tested empirically. And I think that as quantum computers get bigger and bigger, we're gonna be able, we're gonna start seeing more and more empirical tests of of algorithms, right? It, that that are interesting. Um, and cause we're, we're bound currently by, you know, classical simulation overhead. And that's something, you know, everybody is trying to cash in on, you know, there's, there's the players of IBM's, uh, QIS kit, there's Rigetti's, uh, Forest, uh, and PyQuil, 
There's uh, today Microsoft announced QSharp, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know there's some open source uh, solutions like Quipper, and everybody's doing their quantum compiler because you know they want to be the new TensorFlow <laughs> of 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 quantum programming, right? Google is doing very well right now in the classical machine learning side of things because they kind of they came up with this very nice language that you know everybody wants to use. So you know if you have the best programming environment, that's how you get loyalty from 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 users or programmers right and then they'll want to uh run them on your machine right and then you'll be the first one to run it on your machine so that's something we're seeing a lot of uh push towards quantum programming also a lot of a lot of startups um (laughs) every every (laughs) that was the running joke everyone everyone has a startup now yeah every Um, man and his dog's got one right yeah so so I mean, you know, it's an exciting time. We think some certain applications, you know, might be useful with a quantum computer. We don't have all the proofs yet, and the ones we can prove are definitely in the in the post fault tolerance regime. But I remain optimistic that we'll find ways to use these machines for for things that we couldn't do with a classical computer, right? It might be an analog machine. It might be a noisy circuit model machine, um, but it's, it's we're gonna learn we're gonna learn new things from it and maybe maybe just maybe we're gonna be able to solve problems that we weren't able to solve uh, classically before. I, I think if uh, someone could do an experiment where they solve a problem uh, and test empirically that certain variation algorithms uh, could solve interesting problems, then that would be quite an achievement too. But right now, I guess the the next checkpoint is definitely the quantum supremacy demonstration that everybody is is chasing. So, we'll see we'll see which player it's a bit like the game of thrones, but it's mm-hmm. the game of 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 uh quantum. Um so, so I we'll mean, what was which... the, the here's an interesting take that I've certainly heard people advocate um but considering there were representatives there obviously from the algorithmic community because this was a conference primarily based on uh sort of short-term quantum algorithms or something that could be implemented soon. Mm. But I certainly know um, from Google's perspective and from a couple of the other hardware players, their their idea is that the best way to spur this kind of um, research into small-scale or non-error-corrected algorithms is to put these small-scale machines on the cloud, like whether it's the mm. IBM device. I certainly know Rigetti and Google have similar plans uh, to put right. small qubit arrays on the cloud and have people play around with it. Um, was this discussed at all? Or was it really sort of, no, you need to be a lot more sort of generalized about this. You know, having 10 or 20 qubits to play around with on the cloud is probably not going to be enough to see any significant development. Uh, I mean, it's it's nice to play with some a few qubits on the clouds, a few real qubits, you know, to feel like you're actually programming a real quantum computer. But, you know, with a decent server of, say, you know, almost a terabyte of RAM, you could run, you know, in the mid-30s, upper 30s, almost 40 qubits uh, w- with a, a simulator, a, cl- a classical simulator of a quantum computer. And my personal work was on a classical simulator of a noisy quantum computer because it's more stable and you can have different noise models and for now it's 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 quite nice to test your algorithm on a simulator before you think about running it on an actual 
quantum chip. So I guess once we're past, you know, 50 or something, 50 qubits, then you don't have a choice. You can't run that scale of an algorithm on a, a classical computer unless you want, you know, <laughs> server uh, computing costs uh, through the roof, mm-hmm. right? So, so at that point, I think a lot of companies maybe. I, I, I don't know I don't know about you know say IonQ or other players but I guess maybe some other companies will wait until they're in that supremacy class to really uh, monetize and that maybe having something on the cloud before that might not be interesting to them uh, I know Rigetti and IBM have you know opened uh, a couple chips that um, you can access in the in the cloud and that's that's very nice um, but I guess once we're past, everybody says 50, but you know, <laughs> IBM is doing um, pretty pretty well with their classical simulations of quantum computers, so maybe it might be 60. Uh, but at that scale, it's going to be definitely you want to use an actual quantum chip, and you don't have a choice because otherwise, uh, you cannot simulate it. Um, and the, you know, I guess that's that's the point of showing supremacy, so that uh, you know, there's definitely. No doubt that you have to use a quantum computer if you want to run the scale of an algorithm. Well, with your and, own work, did you did you find much of a benefit to having the simulator there, or was it mm. it was more about okay, I've developed this algorithm, I know it works. Now I want to see is it you know intrinsically robust to errors or some other aspect of it rather than the development of the the algorithm itself. Um, I think both came, it was a pretty quick project. So I guess both came at the same time. I just, we just tested it without noise, seemed to work. And then we kicked up the noise and various parameters of the noise. And it seemed to still work to some extent up to certain levels of noise. So the simulator was nice because, you know, we don't know where, where we're going to implement this yet. And different companies or different computers have different noise profiles. So we could test different levels of noise to see what are our options and which one could, which chips could, or implementations could run it and which could not. Um, and I guess once you go to an actual physical quantum computer, then you can't adjust the noise level to see uh, if it runs. But at that point, you know, it's besides the point you're actually running an algorithm on the full quantum computer. So just an, uh, that's all you need. Right, right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we're getting towards sort of our, our 45, 50 minute cutoff here. So I, I thought we'd just finish things off by uh, basically getting your feelings as to, to where this is going to go um, mm. in the future, especially in regards to your own specific area of quantum machine learning, where you think there is value in that. Um, mm. It's certainly an extremely young area, um, even yeah. quantum computing, which is in its of itself quite young. Yeah. Um, and also whether or not you, you see hope in finding something that could be commercially valuable or commercially relevant um, right. in this non-error-corrected regime and around the area where they're trying to hit now for quantum supremacy. Right. I mean, we'll have to, again, a lot of these algorithms are empirically checked. So, you know, once we'll get to play, you know, once myself I'll get to play around with so let's say a 60 qubit uh, quantum computer, then I'll, I'll be very excited to see, you know, the results. And then I'll, I'll be motivated to try to tweak algorithms or invent new ways to use this power to, to accelerate uh, classical machine learning. Um, no, well, classical machine learning on a quantum computer. The field of quantum machine learning, yes, it's, it's, it is quite young. So I have hopes for it. Um, personally, I'm, I'm interested in 
you know, trying to translate the, the machine learning problem onto a quantum computer, sometimes you learn interesting things about machine learning itself, right? Or classical machine learning mm -hmm. algorithms that you could try to figure out from a quantum machine learning algorithm that you, you figured out first. So I'm, I'm, I'm exploring all pot potential avenues there, but I'm really hopeful that, yes, these, these pre-fault tolerance devices are, are going to be useful for, uh, say, some, some basic quantum chemistry um, and some machine learning, we think, I think it's safe to say it, it, it's probably going to work. It's going to be, you know, an interesting cost-benefit analysis to see, you know, at, at a certain scale that's really interesting. Um, is it better? Is it more useful? Say I'm a company, you know, I want to pay this much to, to have the best model, right? Let's say I get a slightly better fit with a quantum computer, mm -hmm. but it, it costs this much to run, whereas a classical computer costs this much, you know, it's going to be a cost-benefit analysis for for various companies. So I, I can't quite predict the future, but there's certainly a lot of excitement at IBM uh, last week. And it seems we're on the cusp of a very interesting era. And hopefully, hopefully we don't overhype things and say that, you know, the quantum computers we have now will solve everything exponentially faster, which some layman articles tend to say, but yeah. uh, I guess we, we got to veer away from the hype and you know, just still explore and be optimistic that, you know, maybe we'll find something useful to do uh, in the meantime until we get to fault tolerance. Uh, but, you know, if we just understand more about quantum computing in general and we keep progressing, then eventually we'll get we'll get to the holy grail of of, of fault tolerant quantum computing. And then hopefully, uh, you know, we'll reap the full benefits of, of quantum computing. And I'm I'm just excited every day now. You know, the, the there has been I, I entered grad school and there's there's been a boom of of quantum computing interest and funding and progress and it's it's very exciting times uh, right now and and personally I'm trying to my best to to expand the, you know the field of quantum machine learning uh, because there's only a select few people that have worked on this so far. So you know, trying to expand the community, uh, spread the message that you know it's it's a it's a completely new field. So grad students out there that want to jump into an exciting new field, subfield of quantum computing, uh, you know, come join us, <laughs> uh, us quantum machine learners, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's it. Well, that's an extremely optimistic note to, uh, to end this <laughs> podcast on. So. I think right. I need to get more uh, more of the younger generation involved in these podcasts. They're so much more optimistic, <laughs> right? Um, right. Than even still the got the energy. Yeah, <laughs> even the midterm researchers or the or the more senior ones. So, um, thanks again uh, for Great. giving us a rundown of what happened last week, and, and hopefully people have taken away something from it. I think the talks are online. Um, right, that's right on uh, IBM Research uh, their YouTube YouTube channel. Um, it's all online. That's yeah. right. So I'll put a link that uh, I'll put a link mm -hmm. to that in the description, and, and people can go check it out if if they're interested to. So fantastic, Guillaume, uh Thanks again, and uh, thank you. Hope to see you sometime in the future. <laughs> I don't think we've yeah, actually met a physically. That's right. Um, so everyone, thanks again uh, for downloading this podcast. Uh, I'll, as I said, within the new year, I will try to have more regular guests on uh, than the latter half of this year, um, but. Thanks for bearing with me and I hope you continue to enjoy the series. So thanks all.